Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services. We hope you enjoy. Amen, amen. All right, well, you guys may be seated. Want to... uh... Say Merry Christmas. Welcome to Young Adults, if you came in a little bit late. And uh, before we hop into where we're going today, I got a big announcement, all right? So next week, can anyone tell me what's coming up next week? Our Christmas party. All right, so our Christmas party, um, it has a snow hill and snow. Right out here, we're doing a bunch of snow, so be here for that. Tons of food. We're doing tacos, because why not? Um, We have a hot chocolate and dessert bar. I don't know what dessert bar means, but we'll have a bunch of desserts. We have photo booth. Santa's obviously coming. Uh, We're doing a Christmas movie, games, worship, a sermon. It's going to be tons of fun. All right, so next week, invite some friends. It's going to be an awesome service, literally one week from today. Any questions about this real quick before we hop into where we're headed? Questions, comments? We're good? Easy enough? All right, perfect. All right, well, I want to welcome you guys to week two of a series entitled Moss. I called it Moss because I, I thought a series on more just didn't sound, they didn't have seem like a luring effect. And uh, I don't even know if that's how you say that. But um, I want to do a series on more, that Christmas is more than you ever thought it was. And so I want to take some symbols of Christmas, some common ones, to show you that there's more behind those common uh, uh, meanings and common symbols of Christmas. I want you to show you that Christmas has more to offer you. I want to show you that Christmas um, is a season of more, but not in the way that maybe you think I'm talking about more. But before we kind of talk about all that, I think we need to kind of pause, and that is that we need to stop and we need to remind ourselves and start, I guess, with the person and the present of Christmas. That's the person of Jesus Christ, right? Now, I realize that over the last 2,000 years, there are plenty of people that have heard about Jesus, the most famous figure in all of human history, but there isn't as many people that actually know him personally. And so I want to introduce you to him tonight. His name, Jesus, is, comes from Yeshua. We know Jesus as a Greek alliteration, Jesus, but Yeshua would have been the name in which um, he would have been called by. Now, uh, Yeshua is a derivative of Joshua. Joshua translates God delivers. Now, Christ is his title. It's not like it wasn't like on his real ID, you know, like if he got pulled over and, the, and it was like Jesus Christ, like that wasn't his last name, right? Christ was a title that was given to him and it translates and means this, the chosen one. Now, Yeshua or the Christ, he would have lived 2,000 years ago and he grew up in a small town to two poor and peasant teenagers. Now, uh, uh, most scholars between, believe between the age of 13, 14, or 15, somewhere between there, it was probably the age of Mary when she delivered God. Like, that's wild to me, right? And, and he grew up uh, very, very poor. His house was probably the size of like a walk-in closet today. Um, he was a tecton. We believe most people think he was a carpenter. And that isn't technically false, but if you've ever been to ancient Israel, there isn't many trees. Uh, and so most likely he would have been a masonry. He would have worked with stone. And so that's called a tecton, someone who works with wood and stone. Um, he had a three-year ministry. So I've technically, I guess, been in ministry longer than Jesus had. His ministry was a little more impactful. Um, he had no kids. Um, he never married. was never wealthy. He led no armies and uh, held no political offices. Uh, he died a brutal death. He was murdered. And yet he changed the world forever. Think of it this way, right? His life was so influential that we measure time by his life and time by his death. He literally cracked the calendar in half as we know it. We have BC before Christ, AD, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. The entire world for the last 2,000 years has celebrated his birth on December 25th and his resurrection every Easter. In fact, if we look all throughout human history, we'll discover that there are more songs written for him, more paintings painted of him, more books written about him, more lives devoted to him than any other person in the, in the totality of human history. The question is, who is this man? 
And then you come to the pages of Scripture, right? Well, there's 3,500 years worth of history in the 66 books that are here. We learn that all of them, all the books, all the history, all the words, all the prophets, all the law, all of it points and always pointed to Jesus Christ. Right? The Old Testament, it is the anticipation of Jesus Christ. The Gospels, I'll talk about them in a second, they're the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. They are the presentation of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts, right after the Gospels, it is the continuation of Jesus Christ. Then you have the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, James, and all the writings of Paul. They are the explanation and clarification of who Jesus Christ is. And then finally, the book ends uh, 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 book 66 with Revelation. It's the consummation by Jesus Christ, him literally bringing the world to an end, time itself to an end. The question is, who is this man? Today, we're going to discover a little bit more about who he claimed to be and uh, the answer to that life-altering, eternity-changing question. But before we do that, I have a question that I want you guys to discuss. Here's the question. When you think about Christmas, what immediately comes to your mind, right? So when Christmas is popping in your mind, you're thinking about it in November um, or in October, depending on how early you decide to think about decorating and think about Christmas or whatever it is. Um, what comes to mind when you think of Christmas? I'll give you guys 30 seconds. Turn to some people that are around you. What comes to your mind when you think of Christmas, all right? You got 30 seconds. Turn to some people. Ready, set, Go. All right, all right. How many of you guys thought of Justin Bieber? <laughs> no one. All right. Uh, all right, let me hear. What, when you guys think of Christmas, what pops to your mind? Anyone? Decorations. All right. Anyone else? Celebration. Anyone else? Time with family. Anyone else? Snow. We live in Southern California, bro. <laughs> you're just thinking about snow. You're like, I wish it was snowing. Anyone else? When you think about Christmas, what comes to mind? Santa. Santa Claus. Actually, I may talk about him next week. His whole history, he was a pastor. I'm trying to figure out, like, am I going to teach my daughter about Santa Claus? And I'm like, like, I grew up with Santa Claus and was like, and then I found out my dad was Santa Claus and it was a whole thing. But, uh, I mean, he was an old, fat, white man. But anyways, uh, but like, you know, I'm trying to like, because I feel like the jump, if like daddy lied about, you know, Santa Claus, maybe he's lying about Jesus, you know? So I'm like, I'm like trying to navigate this, you know, like, I don't want to lie to her, right? But like, anyways, uh, anyone else? Think about Christmas, what comes to mind? Christmas trees. Thank you. That's my answer. Christmas trees, right? Each and every single year, um, it was my job in my house to do two things. I had to help my dad put lights on the house because he was old and he didn't want to go on a ladder. And number two, um, it was my job to set up the Christmas tree and string all the lights. I didn't grow up in a wealthy family, and so we didn't have trees that already were lit. I had to like buy like 99 cent lights or whatever it is and string them around the tree. You know, that was my job each and every single year. Now, if you were like me, you probably grew up at school uh, at the local elementary schools, every single year for like in you know, first through sixth grade, um, you had to make like an ornament, you know, and then you had to put it on the tree. And so I have a photo of mine. I literally found mine in my car today, of all places. Go, do I have the photo? Is the photo up there? Is it up there? Yes. That's my twin sister, by the way. Uh, it's the best, dude. I had the best haircut and everything. All right. Anyways, I just found that today and I was like dying. I was like, dude, it's literally, I don't know why it's in my car, but I, I was searching through something and I found it. Make me think of Christmas trees. And it is a Christmas tree. This is prophetic. All right. Uh, so, so I imagine if you're like me, right, you grew up probably with a Christmas tree in your house, right? I mean, if you at least grew up um, either Christian or even if you're not Christian, like it's a pretty kind of common thing to have a Christmas tree in your house, right? But does anyone know the origin of the Christmas story? Why do we place them in our houses as monuments to usher in this season? Or maybe there's a better question. 
what does a pine tree have to do with a kid that was born 2,000 years ago, right? Well, it all begins with something called the evergreen tree, right? The fir tree, the evergreen tree, was an ancient symbol of everlasting life. Evergreen meant everlasting life in the midst of winter and the greenest kind of season during the year. Now, in ancient Rome, uh, they would have decorated their homes with evergreen branches during this season, and in ancient inhabitants of uh, ancient Europe or northern Europe, um, they would have cut uh, evergreen trees and planted them in boxes inside their houses as a w- in wintertime as a symbol of life. Now, fast forward a few hundred years to the Middle Ages, to the 5th and the 16th century, and there was something that all the churches in Germany did. It's kind of interesting. The priest or someone that worked at the church, I guess an intern or whatever, it was their job to go into the forest in Germany, find the nicest, biggest tree they could, hack that thing down, and bring it over into the town square where they would cover it in apples and cover it in wafers, and it was called the paradise tree. Now, the paradise tree was used in medieval German plays called the paradise plays. And they were acted out in front of churches during the Christmas season to represent the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now, in early church calendars, I don't actually believe this is real, but in early church calendars, they believed that on, the, on December 24th was Adam and Eve's day. It was the day that Adam and Eve plunged the world into darkness and into sin. And so this tree was often paraded around the town and got into the town squares before the play started as a way of advertising or marketing for the play. And the purpose of the play was to tell the Bible story to people that were illiterate, people that couldn't read, or before the printing press. Now, the tree represented the tree in the Garden of Eden, and the apple, pretty obvious, the fruit that Adam and Eve ate, and finally a wafer to represent communion and how Christ brought new life through a tree. Hold on to that for a second, because we'll come back to it. It even got a new name. It was called the Christ Boehm. It translates the Christ tree, and eventually the Christ tree, the Catholic Church adopted it. It became the Christmas tree because Christ's mass, it's a church service around Jesus Christ. That's where Christmas actually comes from. Now, fast forward to the Middle Ages, and we meet a man who definitely was familiar with the paradise tree, a man named Martin Luther. He was the first person to bring a Christ tree into his house in the way in which we know it. A story is told that one night before Christmas, he's walking from his church back to his house, going through um, this massive forest uh, in Germany, and it's snowing, and he sees these massive evergreen trees that just almost touch the stars. And he sees all of the stars twinkling between the, um, uh, the, the branches and the leaves and all of that, and he thought it was so beautiful that he went home, and he told him that it reminded uh, him of Jesus Christ. He says this, Jesus Christ left the stars of heaven to come to earth at Christmas. So that same night, he decided to uh, chop a tree down, take it into his house, decorate it with candles, which is sketch, oh my gosh, uh, and then to represent the stars. And he did all of this to quote him, he says this, to remind my young kids that Jesus is the light of the world, and thus the Christmas tree was born. See, the paradise tree was designed to draw us to the tree in the garden, and the paradise that was lost in that garden. The tree in the garden is down designed to draw us to the tree of the cross, where paradise can be found there. There's two trees. The paradise tree is designed to draw us to the garden. The garden is designed to draw us to the cross. Paradise lost in the garden. Paradise can be found through the cross of Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts chapter 5, verse 30, it says this, The God of our fathers raised Jesus from whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Or in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it gives us the idea of what it looks like to be born in Adam's family, which we all were. For in Adam you all die, but you can find new life in Christ. You shall all be made alive. Let me boil this down for you. Adam and Eve, they plunged the world into death and darkness by plucking from a tree. Jesus brought life and light by being pinned to a tree. That is the story between Genesis and Revelation. That our ancestral parents, they brought death. They brought sin into the world 
by plucking from a tree, and Jesus brought life. That's why he's called the second Adam. He's brought life and light back into the world through, through, through being pinned to a tree. In the person of Jesus Christ, Scripture reaffirms this reality over and over, that Jesus is the embodiment of life and light. And, and for those of us that are new to the whole, like, Christianity, Jesus movement thing. Let me kind of give you a few tips and pointers to understand the Christmas story a little bit better. There are four accounts that personally record the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and teach us this reality that he is the embodiment of life, the author of it, and of light. Each one of these gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have a different theme. They're designed to teach us something new and unique about the person of Jesus Christ. Now, personally, my favorite out of the four is John. Now, John, uh, right in the beginning of his gospel, right out of the gate, what he wants you and I to know about who Jesus Christ is and what he claimed uh, to be about and what his message was, he says this in John chapter 1, verse 4. Four verses into is what he wants us to know. In him, Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. One of John's favorite descriptions of Jesus Christ is the idea of light. In fact, light is a major theme in Scripture. In fact, in uh, the very stories of Jesus' birth in the Gospels, we read of a star showing wise men, right, their way to Jesus. Then we read of angels uh, performing an alluring light show, a light show basically in the sky to get the attention of shepherds so they could also make their way over to Jesus. And then Jesus tells us that the reason that he came on Christmas, the whole why of Christmas, is that he would bring light into the world. In the book of John chapter 12, verse 46, it says this, I am light that has come into the world so that all who believe in me won't have to stay any longer in the dark. Think of it this way. This is how the king of the universe describes the why of Christmas. And so if you've ever asked the question, what is Christmas about? You need to lean in because Jesus tells us what Christmas is about, that he came to be a light in the darkness because we are too spiritually blind to find our way to him and find us out of the wretched situation and dark situation that sin has placed us in. Tonight, I'm going to quickly, I'm going to attempt to quickly tell you three things about light that I learned in studying um, light during the Christmas season. The first is this, light entices. There's something about a light that like allures us, right? When you think about it, one of the very first indications that we're moving towards the Christmas season is that people start putting lights everywhere. We put them on trees, we put them on houses, put them on buildings. I've even seen during the Christmas season, people decorate their cars with lights and even have like ugly Christmas sweaters where they put lights on their, uh, on their Christmas sweaters, Right? And so uh, uh, it's kind of like lights are everywhere during the season. This last week, uh, my wife and I and my daughter, we were in Chicago on a little vacation, and uh, we were, stayed off a, a place called uh, Magnificent Mile. And it's such a beautiful, like, if you, I don't know if you've ever been to Chicago, especially when it's snowing during uh, December, it, it's beautiful. And especially at night, their entire city is just lit up. Every single individual tree, every storefront, every building is just lit up perfectly. I mean, the whole downtown area is blanketed in lights, and it was blanketed in snow. Now, lights during the Christmas season are not just decorative. They are symbolic. They teach us a truth about the season. And that's the reason that we even developed the tradition of putting lights on things. I'll give you a silly example to teach this. Um, back when I was in seventh and eighth grade, I had a, I had a best friend. His name was Dom. And uh, we had this game whenever a bunch of us would spend the night at his house. It was hide-and-seek. Chances are you probably played hide-and-seek before. But there were two rules at Dom's house whenever we played hide-and-seek um, that you had to do. The first is you had to turn all the lights off in the entire house. The second is if you were to move, you had to move as fast as you possibly could. Only 10. So if you're, if you're going from here to there, full speed. So you have a bunch of seventh and eighth graders, 10 of us in his house, all running around pitch black as fast as we possibly can. You can probably see where this is coming. People are colliding into each other. They're sliding, really breaking things, right? There's vases that are falling. One slides into the window, almost breaks his entire glass window. There are two rules. It has to be dark. You have to run at full speed wherever you're headed. That, those, those are the only rules, right? The game is obviously dangerous for the simple reason the lights are off. 
Think of it this way, right? If you want to do anything in a house, if you want to do anything in a building, you have to first turn the lights on and you won't be able to see your way around properly. You're not going to see the world around you even properly. The truth is, the world is a dark place and you're never going to find your way around the world or see the world as it really is. That's what reality is, by the way, to see the world as God sees it, unless Jesus becomes and is our light. My application is simple for you for this part of my point. Is there's, if light is to entice you, then this should be the season that you're more drawn to your faith in Jesus Christ than maybe any other. I mean, yes, obviously, um, Easter is extraordinarily important, but Easter would have never happened if Christmas didn't come first, right? The baby in a cradle grew up to be the man on the cross, but only because he first made the transition from heaven to earth, became one of us, like Philippians 2 talks about, right? Number two, um, light exposes. Simple question. Why are bars and clubs dark? I mean, I've never been to either one, um, but why, at least from like what, they're always dark, bars, and, and especially clubs, they're always dark, because darkness conceals reality. You flip the lights on and people are like, go, you know, like, like that, that person's not as good looking as I thought they were, right? For some reason, darkness has the capacity, right, to uh, make our flaws, our wrinkles, our acne, our indents in our face, whatever it may be, our big nose, whatever it is, right? They, they become just a little bit less discernible because you are in a darkened room. Darkness makes us kind of actually look better. You know, uh, a few years ago, my wife and I were at Disneyland, and uh, we were on Space Mountain. And we're on the ride, and all of a sudden, the ride just stops. And we're sitting there for like three minutes before anything happens. I'm like, what's going on, right? And all of a sudden, over, over the radio, it says, the, the, the ride has like broken down. We have repairmen coming your way. And all of a sudden, they flip the lights on in this building. It's like literally just a massive warehouse, like literally like this, just bare walls like this. It's like the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. Literally, it's like there's cobwebs. It, there's like, it's, just, it's just like not impressive. Now, at night, though, if you've ever been there like, and you've been on Space Mountain or when they have the lights off, it's like impressive. You know, it's like there's like this music. There's like laser lights. You know, like it's kind of impressive. But the second they flipped the lights on, it was like it was ugly. I see this like random dude like working on it. You're like waving to him. He's like waving. It's just a whole weird, like it's just a weird thing going on, right? Sometimes things look more appealing in the dark, but once the lights are turned on, you see them for what they really are and they lose their allure because things are exposed for what they really are. This is one of the reasons that we as Christ followers are commanded to live differently because we see the world for what it really is and that should cause us to desire different things knowing that the world can't offer you what it promises that it can. I mean, let me provide you, right, with what our culture has made this whole season about. It's brainwashed and convinced people that what you really need during this season and throughout your entire life, but more than, more than anything during the season, is, is more. That's what you need. You need more money. You need to ask for more things, right? Because we have believed the lie. If you have more treasure, your lives will be more. It'll be fuller. It's kind of ironic, right, that during a giving season, our culture has turned into a greedy season. Scripture time and time again teaches us that greed is a cancer, it says you're defined by the clothes you wear, the house you live in, the car that you drive, the comfort you enjoy, the food you eat, the college you went to or the college you're, you're hoping to go to, what things you can accomplish and what things you can achieve. And then wealth becomes, right, the means by which you have respect, power, comfort, um, luxury, those types of things. None of those things are necessarily bad. But when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. And it's not normally the wealth that we're actually after. It, it's normally status, it's possessions, it's comfort, it's the convenience that wealth provides. But the biggest lie that greed tells us is that you don't need to die and go to heaven. You can have heaven now and kind of be like a God now. I mean, right, there's this subconscious lie that goes, if you make enough, you can create a world that's not affected by the curse. 
that you can have total control over your circumstances and you can distance yourself from all types of suffering by filling your lives with luxuries and comforts and, and, and that type of things and those type of stuff. But then the light of Christmas kind of exposes all of this and, and, and brings, reveals that the truth of real things like money isn't actually going to fill your heart. Even relationships may not actually fill your heart. Scripture tells us things like that, uh, that you can't save yourself, that you're not God, that this world is dark. Or in Mark chapter um, 8, it says this, for what does it profit a man to gain the world yet forfeit his soul? So imagine you could get everything on your Christmas list, but then you don't go to heaven. You actually don't have a relationship with your maker. Is it worth it? No. Light exposes what this world really is and what it can actually offer us. And then Christmas shows us that this world is dark and that the light of the world this world is so dark that the light of the world needed to come from outside of it to bring light to it. In the book of John chapter 8, verse 12, it says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, the light of Christmas reminds us that without Jesus, we all walk in darkness. I have some people in my life that, uh, that aren't really followers of Jesus. And it's like, maybe, maybe you've had these moments too, right, where there are people you're close with, people you love, and you just go like, your life would just be so much better. You wouldn't search validation in that guy or that girl. You wouldn't, want, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't maybe push so hard in your job trying to climb the corporate ladder to feel like you are finally somebody. There's a book entitled Father Fiction, and in it he says that he surveyed the top, five, uh, top 500 Fortune um, 500 companies. And um, he found out that 90% of all those CEOs come from single-family homes with no dad. That's interesting. These, these people are, are, are obviously extraordinarily successful, but could they also be trying to prove something? searching for validation because their father was never there to give it to them, to add courage into their life, which is what encouragement means, to add courage into one's life. And during this season, I I, I look at some of the people in my life, and this season may be even more challenging for some people because they've lost somebody or whatever it is. And, And I just want you to know, like, I just want these people to know, like, this, your life could be so much more and better. Not that you're gonna get all the materialistic things, but, like, if you would just see the light of Christmas receive the light of Christmas, I'll talk about that in a second, you could have the wholeness during the season that your heart really wants. The next thing I want to teach you is, and thing I learned is that light also escorts. It guides, it directs, it informs. Think of it this way, right? A beacon guides home an airplane in foggy conditions. Right? A lighthouse steers a ship away from danger. The reflectors on a highway um, in the median during wet conditions guide and direct people with their headlights beaming back at them, Right? Jesus came during this season to be a light that guides us. In fact, right when he was born in Bethlehem, there was a special star that lit up the sky in the east. It attracted some magi and some astrologers, and it showed them where the special king was born. That star literally guided them to the destination to find Jesus. Matthew 2, 9 says this, they went on their way and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. They found the Christ child and worshiped him. See, just as the light gave direction to these men thousands of years ago, the light of Jesus is still giving direction to our lives today. Luke chapter 1, verse 79 gives us the account of Zacharias, which is the father of John the Baptist, um, prophesying that the Messiah would be like, quote this, he'll be like a rising sun to shine on those living in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Here's what this means for you and me. Whenever you face a major decision in your life, Whatever the decision may be, whether it be major or whether it be small, you, if you are a Christ follower, do not have to make that decision alone. God promises you in Scripture to guide you. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 56, it says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. In the book of Psalms, chapter 119, verse 105, says this, Your word, God's word, 
is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Here's what I want to communicate to you. God is never going to lead you to wrong places and wrong people. You will lead yourself to wrong places and wrong people. I will lead myself to wrong places and wrong people because I'll develop wrong passions. God promises to lead you to good places, to right places. You and I just need to give him our life and trust him to lead our life. And so your last question tonight may be this. How can I receive this light and then live in the light of Christmas? In the book of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, 600 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah said this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want you to notice one interesting part of this verse. It says not just that a child is born, but rather that a son is given. What this means is that Christmas is a reminder to us that Jesus has been given to us as a gift. But a gift can only be received with the willingness to open them. See, when you think about it, right, all presents... Um, I'll say it this way. Christmas is, is, is all about a season about receiving presents, right? But for a moment, think about what receiving some presents means about who you really are. So imagine like, I don't know, Christmas morning, December 25th, your parents hand you a gift, you open it up, and it says, how not to suck as a son or daughter? You kind of be like, thanks, right? Like, or imagine, I don't know, like your, uh, your, uh, your girlfriend, boyfriend, your spouse, they give you a gift, and you open it up, and it's weight loss pills, and a, and a dieting book, and some weights. You go like, are you trying to like, in, like I feel like you're trying to say something. Uh, or I don't know, maybe let's say uh, uh, right after finals, your, uh, one of your professors gives you a, a gift, you open it up, and it's a book on ADHD. <laughs> you're like, thanks, you know, like, right? Right, if you receive these gifts and you say, thank you so much, you have to first admit, right, that you're a sucky kid with ADHD and you're fat, right? Like, <laughs> that's what you have to admit, right? The truth is, right, some gifts are so hard to receive because to receive them, you have to admit some things about yourself that you may not want to. And honestly, I think that is one of the greatest barriers to people accepting Christ. They have to believe certain things about themselves that they don't want to, like they cannot save themselves. That they're not mistakers who need a second chance. They are sinners who need a savior. That heaven is not their natural default, that hell is. And in case something changes, they're not going to go to heaven. Those are some challenging things to swallow. It's one of the reasons I think my dad was never able to cross the line of faith was because he had to believe some things about himself that he didn't want to have. He was prideful. Tim Keller says this, there has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means that we're so lost, so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. That means that you're not somebody who can pull yourself together, live a moral and good life, get to heaven on your own. See, the truth of Christmas is both brutal, but it's also beautiful. The brutality of Christmas teaches us that you cannot save yourselves from the darkness of sin, but the beauty of Christmas teaches us that Jesus can and he is willing to. John 1, 5 says this, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So as we kind of end today, I want to invite the band to come back up and they're going to lead us in, in one final song, which is like a song that's like 20 years old, but the lyrics of it are just so poetic for the story of Christmas and what we're sharing today that I wanted them to sing this song. During the song, I want to encourage you to maybe think through these three questions. The first question is this, have you invited the light of the world into your life? Like personally, not that you ever say the sinner's prayer, not that you ever raise your hand one time in church, not that you ever get baptized, not, not in any of those types of things, because the truth is this, hell will be full of people that sat in churches. Hell will be full of people that rose their hand and said, the pastor said, I see you. Hell is going to be full of people that said the sinner prayer. Hell is going to be full of people that never drank, never, never, got, never got high, never had alcohol, didn't have sex before marriage. Why? Because none of those, not one of those things, a 
assures that you have a relationship with the Son of God. Not one of them says you have entered into an actual flourishing relationship with Jesus Christ. So the first question, have you actually invited the light of the world into your life? Number two, have you asked the light of the world to lead you? God, I don't know what you want to do with my future. I don't even know what I'm passionate about yet. But God, I give you room to interrupt my plans. I know I went to school for this, but what if, God, my maker and creator, you have something different for me? That's my story. 18 months into me pursuing criminology, I was going to be in the FBI. That was my whole plan. God interrupted interrupted my life with the call to be a pastor, and I had to figure out what that meant for my schooling. I had all, all these units that didn't transfer to Biola, all this stuff. Are you willing for God to interrupt and intervene in your life? Because I promise you it'll be worth it. Finally, the last question is, have you invited the light of the world into the darkest places of your life? And I want you to think of it this way. Life only happens in the presence of light, right? So whether that be photosynthesis, whatever it is, right? If there's areas of your life that you're holding away from the, the very source of life, All that's going to grow in those types of places is anger, bitterness, resentment, not good things. When you bring things out into the light, that's where God can can recycle. That's where God can bring life into it. And so if you want to experience a life that God has for you, you need to invite the light of the world into those areas of your life. Put your arm around somebody. I'll pray for us, and they'll lead us in this last song. Father, today I, uh, I realize, God, that this world doesn't offer any of the things, God, that it promises that it can, like salvation, wholeness, and peace. But Father, you do. And so 2,000 years ago, God, you stepped from heaven to become one of us, all God, to reconcile us back to you. Father, I ask for the people that are here, would they have a personal moment with you in this moment and realize that maybe they have never actually given their life over to you? I ask, God, by your spirit, you would convict them and that they would. God, I realize that there's another group of us here, God, that they are still holding on to secret sin some habits, addictions, some lies, some parts of their lives, God, that they haven't given over to you, maybe parts of their past or things, God, that have even happened to them. I ask, Lord God, that you would give them the courage, God, to give those areas of their heart and their lives and their stories over to you so that you could bring light in the midst of darkness. So, Father, today we're attentive to your spirit. Would you continue to lead us? We love you. And all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.